Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Ryan Springer, who is the founding partner of Midnight Venture Partners, as well as a co-founder of High Desert Cactus Vodka. So Ryan, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the background about yourself and some of the projects that you're involved in? Yeah, man. Uh, I usually start my personal background with a bunch of uh, nepotism jokes. Uh, my, my dad started a, I'll save you those this time. My dad started a like retail consulting firm that mainly did strategy in the 90s. Before that, he was in marketing at Gatorade. Uh, and, and what he did was essentially build retail strategy, trade marketing, data analytics, and later on actual retail execution for a lot of the, uh, most successful wellness brands or natural brands. Uh, he worked with Hanson's monster, Amy's kitchen, emergency, and a bunch of one, you know, a bunch of newer ones that have, that have done really well. I only say that to say I worked for him my whole career. In fact, I kind of grew up in the industry, um, one of my favorite stories about like my bona fides of growing up in the industry. I remember when my dad walked in the house was one of the, he was like, this is the first, uh, commercially viable gluten-free bread. And neither one of us knew what that was. <laughs> it was like 2004 or whatever. And I remember my dad, we tried it and my dad's like, man, I don't know what gluten is, but it's fucking delicious. Cause this is terrible. <laughs> so like, I just remember, like, I, I didn't like natural foods. I, I like, like the industry, but I didn't get it until much later in my life, but, uh, ended up working for him out of college. The, the nepotism part, you know, came more in the fact that he was putting me in these positions where I was learning so much and essentially be kind of an outsourced national sales manager where I would run West central and East salespeople learning retail strategy, flying out and selling to Walmart and Whole Foods. So my personal background expertise was all on the retail strategy and natural better for you CPG side of things. Um, and that sort of led me to where I am now in terms of my, my vodka partner came to me to become his kind of 50, 50 partner in the vodka because of that background, which is what a mistake he made. Cause I did nothing to do with alcohol. Alcohol is a different animal. I've learned that the hard way. Uh, and then, uh, it definitely led me to midnight where we're kind of a very value add VC where we take kind of best in class retail direct to consumer and operations general partners that I had met along the way, along with my two co-founders, Chris Adam and Alex Vodney. Um, and so, yeah, it all kind of stems from, from, from that kind of how I grew up. No, absolutely. And, and one thing I'd love to get into on the VC side of things is how your background, uh, like operating and having that exposure to the space really set you up for success in the, in the venture capital side of things. Right. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about how those two went hand in hand. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of ways. Number one, 
I didn't understand this early on. I, I, you know, the part I understood early was why can't more of these ultra value add people be the ones writing the checks? And there are absolutely funds in CPG that, that are very value add, but there aren't a lot. There's a lot that aren't, you know, and I would kind of get annoyed when I would go into board meetings as like a outsourced VP of sales or national sales manager. And we'd have this guy who was very smart, very kind, but came from like commercial real estate and didn't know anything about CPG. He was giving a bunch of advice and ended up being terrible, kind of pressuring the company to do things just as one example. And so I realized there just wasn't enough functional capital at the seed stage in CPG. There, there were several great funds, VMG being one of them later on, l and things like that. But there weren't enough at the seed stage. There were, there were definitely some, but there weren't enough. So that's what gave me the kind of light bulb moment of, you know, this should happen. What I didn't understand was the advantage I would have in terms of growing up in the industry, like the network side of deal flow. I didn't understand how important that it was because I didn't come from the stage. And so the deal flow side has been huge. Uh, it ended up being kind of our biggest thing. You know, at midnight, uh, one of our partners is Ken Meyer. He ran the Eastern half of Whole Foods Market uh, under John Mackey. Uh, and our D2C partners, Jay Body, Mitch Stoller, Dan Weinberg at Red, Red Krypton. Uh, they've done multiple billion dollar and $100 million D2C brands. And so if you put all those operating people together that have like these 20 and 30 year histories, it's crazy how many deals they see as soon as people find out that they're investors. And so uh, the final piece, I think, is more of what you were asking. What's the perspective of being an, on the operating side that helps? Certainly seeing the kind of founders that won versus the kind of founders that didn't, like understanding the intensity, I think, required uh, was a big deal. Uh, certainly on the retail side, sales velocities by category, gross margins by category. I'd gotten lucky enough to develop this pattern recognition across uh, multiple areas where I could kind of say that gross margin is terrible. You need for a beverage and you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You're going to be in a lot of cash. It's not different enough. The pricing's wrong. So just having been in the industry, my, my specialties were beverage and supplements. Um, I think that helped an enormous amount. And we'll, we'll see, man. Well, I don't even know if I'm any good at VC. We've been doing it for two years. This is a, you know, it, it takes a long time to find out. Uh, uh, my partner Alex and I went to a meeting with uh, a guy named Wayne Wu who started ZMG and uh, he was part of the team of ZMG uh, he, he was a pretty early add on and ends up he's, he's one of the top partners and one of the first things he said was you guys won't know if you're any good at this for like six years so good luck VMG, and VMG, you know, try to figure it out interesting as well um, they do a bunch of stuff. They start like skincare brands, but don't they operate their own companies or something? Right. They can, they're very big. They have multiple billion dollars under, under, you know, primarily I think of them as a growth capital group, you know, writing really large checks and taking people to the next level from like two to two to four, if we're zero to one, you know what I mean? Um, but yes, they operate their own companies. They have multiple divisions that it's really, you know, they've, they've knocked out of the park. They've really grown. So, uh, so I, I would consider them to be a lot of different things. Yeah. So, so for the beverage side specifically, I mean, you know, you have this ecosystem of your experts in DDC, you know, your upbringing in retail and everything. Are you guys all based in Austin and, and how has Austin contributed to this network that you've built? Because you have the whole food ecosystem alone, um, in, in Austin is ginormous and, you know, me having lived there, um, the CPG community is unlike anywhere else. It's it's very heavy, especially beverage, et cetera. 
So um, how has Austin contributed yeah, to Ross like this network that you've been able to build now in the space for deal flow? I uh, I got like two thirds of that. You know, Ryan, how, how has the Austin ecosystem contributed to this network that you've been able to build over time um, and the deal flow that that you now are, are able to tap into? Because, you know, me having lived in Austin, it, the CPG community there uh, was unlike anywhere else I've been. So how has Austin contributed to that? In a massive way. I'm from, you know, I, I moved to Austin when I was like 13 because of Whole Foods, right, uh, given my family history. And so um, I remember when it was like Devin Brands, and now it's an absurd amount. Um, Austin, I'm a big homer. I think Austin pound for pound is the best DPG city. I think there's, uh, there's ones with bigger companies. There's ones with more companies. But in terms of uh, a culture of helping each other and a really impressive sort of, uh, you know, you'll see competitors sitting down to coffee together. You'll see really interesting connections. Everyone's very supportive here. Um, I guess pound for pound Boulder would be number one, but Austin is is my favorite. Uh, and it, it's helped an enormous amount. Are we all in Austin? No. Uh, well, one of the retail guys, my dad's in Austin. His partner, Aaron, is in Portland. Our D2C guys are mostly up near New York and in, in, in Miami. Um, and so we're, we're kind of national that way. But I think a little over a third of our portfolio is in Austin. Uh, there's actually one gym where three of our portfolio companies go. Uh, and, you know, that feels a little dumb uh, at this point. But uh, I, I, if I meet another company and they're in that gym, I don't think we're going to. Do the deal no matter what. <laughs> it almost doesn't matter what the budget's going to be. I'll be like, we can't have this kind of. There's just something drawn there. But you know, Austin is a phenomenal EPG community. I can't say enough about it. And being a fund here is a really, yeah, no offense. Like if you're Tulsa, Oklahoma, this is not going to be the same. And even if you're, you know, I don't want to offend anyone, but another major city, uh, Seattle's a great one. Just not, it's not going to be the same. There's only a couple cities in America. You could have put a VC fund for CPG and do deals just from that town and do really well. And Austin's definitely one. And I'd love to go a little bit deeper there, Ryan, in terms of uh, what you were talking about density and the fact that you've got all all these same companies all in the same space that you're investing. I'd love for you to, you know, give our listeners a little bit of context in terms of the portfolio companies that you have worked with, some of the brands, I know they're they're really popular, so I'd love for you to just shout out some of the brands that you guys have had the pleasure of working with. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm drinking a barcode currently. Uh, these are delicious. Buy as many of them as you can if you're watching this podcast. Uh, some of our, you know, a lot of our portfolio is doing really well. We, we've recently kind of been on it, uh, a kick on fundraising. It's been a good couple of months, and our portfolio is the reason behind that. Uh, one of our, I, I'm not going to give you exact numbers, but one of our portfolio companies just had a 15x markup, which was fantastic within you know 18 months, really, of starting to deploy capital in an earnest way. Um, there's another company that is one of like the top non-out retailer, both online and brick and mortar. That's called Boston. Just had our update with him, Nick Bodkins, the founder. The guy's phenomenal. They're crushing it. Um, it's really fun to watch him start a company that is a wholesaler, a brick and mortar retailer, and a in a marketplace online. 
all at once. And they're doing it really well. I mean, they're going to, they're growing 300%, 200% every year. Uh, they just announced Pernod Ricard, a major alcohol strategic, just put in a very large check. Uh, I think I think they're going to get a really healthy valuation here in about a year. So that one's going fantastic. A Jolie Skincare. Jolie Skincare, that's another one of our best performing companies. Uh, we invested uh, right about a week or two into them getting any revenue at all. They just want. And now, uh, again, I'm not going to give exact numbers. They're doing unbelievable on a monthly basis, revenue-wise, within a year. They're a D2C super success story. Uh, retention rates are like 98%, um, and they're extremely profitable. And so that one has been a blast. Jinx Dog Food is doing really well out of Los Angeles. They've probably grown, I don't know, 8 or 9x. If we put in a check uh, about less than 18 months ago. And there's a bunch more. We just did, we just announced the deal they. It's a, uh, it's a caffeine spray that essentially their, their big point of difference because there are other caffeine sprays on the market. It's it's super small, super mobile, but they've been able to get an enormous amount of caffeine into one spray, like 25 milligrams, which essentially means the three sprays is a cup of coffee. So this, we, we've almost never seen something that has like all the value props in one thing. It's way more convenient than our caffeine solutions. It's super efficacious. It's way healthier. It's just caffeine and L-theanine. Like matcha kind of caffeine and L-theanine. There's no sugar. There's no carbs. There's no chemicals. There's no bullshit. Uh, and, and then finally, it's per like milligram of caffeine is the cheapest thing. You know, it's 10 bucks and it's like, you know, a dozen plus cups of coffee worth the caffeine. So that, that one's a lot of fun. We did that with some incredible kind of co-investors. I could go on, man. I'm really excited about all of our portfolio companies. We've got 13 now. And I, I just don't want to bore everyone on the pod just going through them, but it's, it's been good, man. We've, we're getting a little lucky for sure so far. You know, I think two years into a VC fund, you're always going to look smart because these companies are well-funded. And if you pick smart people, they're going to be look like they're good. We'll see in five or six years, but it's looking good now. What is the perfect and ideal stage that you guys decide to get involved into one of these deals? Like, what's the right moment for, for Midnight to come in and, and, you know, plug in? Well, we have two kind of buckets that we like to get involved. Both of them, we like, we want to add the most value possible. And every VC says that, but not every VC has an executive from Whole Foods, one of the best DC guys on the planet. And uh, I'm pretty biased, but my dad's actually what he does on the strategy side. So um, we have two buckets. One is more of a passive check that can be seed to Series A. And then the other bucket, that's my favorite bucket, is seed, pre-revenue, early, whatever it is. We come in, we write a check, and then we get sweat equity to help you run your retail and DTC. And that's working really well uh, so far. And that's where we plug in and use the agencies, use the group. Uh, and the, and the, it frees up the founder to kind of focus on product and P&L and, and fundraising and all those things early. And what we can bring to the table there is Less of a, hey, do this, do that. And more of a, you know, when you've been doing something for 30 years, it's more of a, man, don't screw this up the way we did at this, these nine times. I even, I, I, I'm pretty young. I, I've brought, I brought two companies to Walmart too early. That's been super painful. I'm not making that mistake again. A lot of it's lessons learned and scars that our team has and kind of what not to do. Well, what to, at least what, what to watch out for. Um, 
So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's sort of the we like seed, we like seed. That'd be the answer. Some Series A, and then there are two real ways we work with with companies. That's really helpful. And Ryan, the the next question I have, because I'm sure a lot of founders have this question, right? Like they're starting out businesses and they're looking for different capital partners and everything. So what, obviously let's assume that having an excellent founder and an exciting category is, you know, that's kind of like table stakes for what it takes to, to get a VC sort of excited about doing a funding round. What are some of the other things that you're looking for that gets you really excited about deals? Maybe on the pre-revenue side, what gets you really excited about getting involved early where you're able to bring on your, like you're saying, your operational ex- expertise and plug in and help scale when a company's pre-revenue, as well as on the, you know, maybe closer to the seed side where you've got a product in market. What are the early signals, whether it's revenue or product or production that gets you excited about wanting to, you know, fund at this seed through a stage. Start the easier one. The easier one is, uh, the seed stage where they have revenue and there are some metrics to go off of D to C we're all about retention, uh, acquisition, you know, you can figure out, you know, they're really good people. We can parachute in, including on our team. They can help you with acquisition. If you have a good product, you should be retaining customers and you can change that number based on retention strategies. And you guys know that better than I do, but usually we can tell, you know, if your retention strategies aren't super sophisticated and your retention is X, you have a good product and people like it. You have a, you have a fit. You found at least one, one demo that loves your product. You found a way to get, get it there. So, you know, a, a magic number for us, there's not really a magic number it can change, but the magic number for us is like a retention rate of like 40% or higher number of customers have ordered twice or more in a year. Um, LTV to CAC ratio is great, but it, that kind of depends on category. So I don't like to just throw out a ratio number there, but um, if you're under 20% on retention on consumers order twice or more in a year, we're, it's going to be tough for us to get interested. You have to be, you have to be like a couch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a little outside of where we would normally end up. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, we, we want to see customers coming back. That's a gigantic measurement for us early. Um, obviously, CAC is important. AOV is important. But the overall profitability window, you know, it's tough when you see brands that are doing 10, you know, their product like they is $10. It's almost smarter to have them on Amazon or if they're on D2C, just understand even if you have a phenomenal CAC and a great gross margin, 10 bucks, is just, it's going to take a lot of order for that to make any sense. So we like to see founders that understand the strategy and, and, and it, whatever, you know, the strategy fits with the product and how people use it at retail, super easy. It's sales velocity units per store per week per SKU. That's, that's the Holy grail. How are you doing versus competition? Um, usually we have the pattern recognition on our team to build a break that down by category retail or go hey everyone on earth is at era one and it was just like man we're doing so well at era one and we're like everyone did at one point you know that's tough to or central market ramon is another one they're like i'm doing 50 units at central market and you're like well that's like madison square garden obviously you know of course you are and so you know being able to see through the noise there but it's sales velocity retail retention online if I'm going to dumb it down, we look at way more than that. Those, you got to have those. 
on the pre-revenue side, um, it's a tough question. You said category and, and founder are given. Those two have to be super excellent on pre-revenue. We all we also have to like the other partners that are coming in with us. We have to see that there's a way to plug the holes we think can happen early. And the product has to be excellent and super differentiated. You know, a late stage incremental is not going to get a pre-revenue check from us unless things are like super interesting elsewhere in the business. Um, so, you know, that's how I would answer that. A lot of the pre-revenues we've done have had some kind of X factor. Uh, whether that be LOIs with 65 of the biggest like uh, CPG businesses in the world. One, you could call this not pre-revenue. They had 7 million in pre-orders. Uh, spending like $10,000 in marketing. Uh, and and so, you know, usually this, and, and the final one that was pre-revenue had a second time founder in the exact same space who had exited with incredible groups like El Catterton coming in next to us and uh, Eric Ryan, who is the founder of Ollie and Method. Brands called California Naturals. We're going to launch in Target. Target had already said yes. There were end caps involved. Um, so, you know, there's usually something special going on if we're going to do a pre-revenue business. Yeah, that I think that's a great way to think of it. And even those benchmarks that you did throw out, it makes a ton of sense for uh, you know, listeners who are either in the early stages of operating a business and are looking to accelerate funding a little bit as they start to scale up, or even, you know, it's a good benchmark for founders who maybe haven't launched their business, but are looking for targets to, to go at, especially if their product is like, if it's something that, you know, is something that's really consumable and you're supposed to be having a lot of it, then you want it, you guys want to be able to see that in the data. And if it's, uh, something that's a little bit of a bigger purchase, like you were saying, like a couch, then it kind of makes sense why you would have a slightly slightly lower rate there. So um, moving on from that, I'd also love to start to get into a little bit of what you were talking about, about how having seen so many of the, these deals, having seen so many of these products go to market, what some of those like fatal flaws are and but also on the positive side what the the things that they must get right are as they start to grow right so from your vantage point uh for the most most successful brands why don't we just chat through a couple either key lessons and key pitfalls to avoid as well as things that you really want to think about getting airtight from the get-go uh that's easy right now, which is, and any founder that's been raising money is going to roll, not roll their eyes. And I know this is true, but they're tired of hearing about it. It's burn rate. So many founders treat CVG like it's tech, but it's not. And you can't burn 500K a month and raise money because nobody's giving you a check right now. Unless things are going spectacular around a 500K. Basically, you've got the gas fully down. There's a giant hole in the boat. And you're just taking on water really fast. And so, uh, you know, you have to have your burn rate. The amount of great businesses and smart founders, usually first time, there's a pattern with the high burn rate, it's almost always first time founders or incredibly confident second time founders. But those guys actually, those guys and girls usually have a spot they're getting to. Uh, the burn has a purpose. But, you know, you usually see the burn coupled with founders who are overly focused on acquisition and not focused enough on retention. I've noticed the pattern that way. So 
uh, you know, understanding that a huge part of this as a found, as an investor is understanding whether or not you as the founder can manage capital responsibly. Um, I think people see too many episodes of Silicon Valley and then think that's how you're supposed to operate a business. But, you know, be as close to break even as you can. You're not supposed to be break even in most categories when you're growing, and that's fine. But, you know, whatever your burn rate you think your burn rate is supposed to be, you need to cut that in half or a third. And then I recently saw some really interesting data that backed up the idea that uh, the gaps between funding rounds are getting longer for brands. And so if you raise a certain amount and you think your runway is 18 months, well, in reality, it's probably going to be 24 months before you can get the next infusion of capital. How do you stretch that further? Uh, so I would say, you know, managing capital is a big thing that I, you know, a lot of first time founders just aren't understanding. Uh, it's not, it's not obvious, I think, in fairness to them. Um, one area that burned to go another step is they will overhire. You know, they'll got like, Hey, I've got a, a VP of growth. And you're like, dude, you're a granola bar doing less than 2 million. You do not need a VP of growth. You don't need a VP of anything. Do you know what I mean? You were the VP of everything currently as, as it should be. Uh, so that always makes me kind of double take, uh, is they over hire too soon. You, it should be you as the founder for a long time with, you know, and, and so when the time is right, you know, when I kind of want to hire slow and fire fast, um, I'm trying to think of other, other big pitfalls I'm seeing. Focus, focusing on the wrong metrics, but I'm repeating myself. You know what I mean? You, you mentioned earlier getting into retail too early. Yeah, yes. That's such a good one, Ramon. And that's a tough one. That's not one you would almost ever be able to just intrinsically know, which is like, there are certain places you should go and there are other places that are the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you're just a lonely person in a rowboat. And you're not ready to go there unless you've got the resources and the know-how and the connections and the plan and everything. Um, and so you'll see some brands just rushed into the middle, not being ready. And other brands, it's totally fine. You can launch in Walmart. You can launch in Target. You need to have the resources and the people around you and the plan and the fit. And then that makes sense. Um, the thing that's always a mistake, in my opinion, I don't ever see this being this working. And you see it all the time is, Hey, I have Wegmans, which is a great one in the Northeast. I have PCC in the Northwest and I have Vons pavilions in Southern California. And you're like, what are you doing? And then they're shipping like glass that's refrigerated and they're killing themselves. Freight is the thing that freight just is the ultimate. It just murders people's PL. <laughs> you don't see it coming. You do the cogs and you're like, Oh man, we're selling it for this. It costs me this. We're good to go. And they forget that getting it there is super expensive. One of my partners, Chris and I, uh, were part of a company that, that went under because the freight, you know, we weren't running it or anything, but we were kind of value add pieces to it. And the freight was just murdering us. We were doing well shelf, but fulfilling to that many DCs with a glass jar was just more than the business could handle. Um, and then the final piece is like, you know, raising money is not easy. Uh, I think it's going to take way longer than you think. Start raising way earlier than you think you need it. Uh, too many founders come and they're like, I got three months of runway left. And you're like, oh, we should have had this conversation a long time ago. Uh, and, you know, a lot of, not bad actor, but more aggressive VCs are going to take advantage of that. They're going to sniff that out really quick. Um, 
And and so, yeah, you know, you're right, Ramon. I think uh, having a sound outlet strategy and treating your early retailers like laboratories. You know, everyone has got this smart approach to DC. A lot of people understand to lab approach and look at the metrics. And a retail, it seems to be just get as many doors as you can and see what happens later. You could do the same thing. Just pick a couple good fit, smaller retailers, run different promotions, see what works, what doesn't, where in the store should you be, especially if you're super innovative. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling on that one, but that, yeah, that, that was a great question. Yeah, I, I think that's super important in terms of retail strategy, because I think what we're seeing now is like you like DTC had its moment where everyone was like all in on DTC. And then now you have all these DTC brands who are basically kind of racing each other into retail and seeing who can get the shelf, the shelf <laughs> space first. But I... I think it's it's a really good point in terms of like being strategic about it because if you're growing fat if you're if you're getting into retailers especially there's I'm sure a bunch of brands that have uh, good ins and connects that can help them get into a couple of these big retailers but if you can't meet that demand and your business can't support it especially on some of those things that you were mentioning like the freight side of things and all of a sudden you're selling in all these places all over the the states and your supply chain can't really handle that then you're you're just digging your own grave. So I think that's really important yeah. to consider. You know, um, you're exactly yeah. right, Blaine. Real quick, they, you know, you'll have a 60% margin on DTC. You think that's your margin. Well, the middleman distributor is about to eat that. And so at retail, your margin's below where it needs to be. I was on a panel that was a lot of fun. And the guy had asked me if, if uh, DTC was dead. Is DTC dead? I'm like, of course it's not dead. That's silly. And my buddy, Chris Jane, Christopher Jane, started proper good. at Stoops and Oatmeal's, they're on fire. Uh, he's the only guy that I let, I'll stay on his SMS, even though it's very annoying. And he's like, uh, you know, buy nine soups or whatever. But the guy is crushing it. He's one of my favorite founders. And I was pointing out to the room, I'm like, everyone think DC is dead. This guy sold like a thousand soups since I sat in this chair. You know, if you're sophisticated, you absolutely can still crush. And that was when it was at his worst. It's, I feel like it's getting a little better um, currently. But you do see these lemming, like everyone's go to DTC. And now everyone's like, go to retail. But retail's always been hard. And it's not, it's not easy all of a sudden. And so I think you're, you're, <laughs> you're exactly right. And you still have to have a plan. You still got to know what you're doing. And it, it's, it's, you know, if I'm an investor, I, I'd love to not finance your learning curve. If I could, I'd love for you to either get the team together to know what you're doing, listen to the people. I love when my founders are like, I don't know this. And they just tell everyone. And then people start like, oh, well, let me help you. Let me introduce you to this person. Let me introduce you to this person. Great founders kind of advertise their their gaps because they're just desperate to kind of fill that gap in knowledge and and you see it man and it gets me fired up because again yeah we've I've already had a portfolio company or two where they're like we learned a lot with that five hundred thousand dollars you're like dude <laughs> you're like that was an expensive lesson um yeah the the, the next question I had uh, coming from your vantage point I'd love to kind of go through baseline just valuations and how you think about valuing companies maybe in the early stage and the seed stage and then as you move further along like what where how you guys derive and get to your numbers obviously cpg and uh you know apparel d2c all these different categories are going to be priced differently than tech so you know why don't you just walk us through how you guys think about valuations and in this climate as as well as maybe we can even talk about what valuations you were seeing before and where you expect them to go in the future. They were absurd before, before, uh, you know, whenever year, year and a half ago, valuations were kind of unhinged. Now they feel a lot more fair. I, I, I'm in the seed stage. 
So, you know, valuations of the public markets are super compressed and the private markets, but at the top near public and like near IPO, those are compressed. You can only value your mom's cookie recipe so little before you just don't do it. Uh, so, you know, we've seen valuation compression. It's definitely real, um, but it's not the same. I'm sure the growth capital guys are just licking their lips. You know, a bunch of $50 million revenue companies are doing like half as much or 70% or whatever. We're not in that world. So I, I, I you know, I, I'm a little ill-informed in terms of what, what's going on above us in the stack, um, but it's definitely more down to earth. It's still a multiple off gross revenue that we don't, one thing we won't do, and I see it's rare for founders to expect this, but some still expect you to get valued off projections and that'll never happen. Uh, we've never done that. We never will. It's, you know, that they're irrelevant to us. We use projections to see whether or not you have a realistic understanding of how the business works, not uh, not a way to value a company. We don't do trailing twelve months either necessarily. It's usually a revenue run rate, um, plus like a you know it's like trailing quarter revenue run rate because you got to be fair to the founder. At the seed stage, a lot of shit changes in the year, so we're not going to do trailing twelve in that case. Um, this is a bit of a cop out, but it's tough for me to answer this question because, you know. There's a company called Gorgie. It's a really exciting energy drink. The founder is a badass. And, you know, I would argue that their valuation that, that we looked at, and I, you know, I want to get in that deal. I think she's awesome. It's very, very high, but she was able to raise very quickly. She's a super dynamic founder. It's a great idea. And some things you're just willing to overpay for. And then we also got into a, a deal in our portfolio where we actually got below the gross revenue r- run rate as a post money. And the reason was they were recapping the business and they just brought in heavy hitters from the industry. It's like a who's who sort of cath table and it's awesome. And getting into that one is a game changer. It was a 3.4 million post money or something like that. <laughs> we should business up for 60 million. We might as well like hit a absolute banger home run. Uh, and, and so that one was really exciting. So, you know, uh, I, a lot of finance people like to sit there and play hardball and the valuation's always got to be low. And it's true, you know, most of the time. But, you know, I, I would go out there and so if you're a founder, socialize your business and find out what the market will pay. You definitely see some where they didn't do that enough and it's undervalued. You see some where you're overvalued and you kind of, I like to tell them on the call, hey, did, you know, I, I'm always, I stick the first call, I'm the deal flow guy. I usually tell the founder, if, it's a, if I know what's going to happen in our engagement committee, I usually tell them, like, we're going to pass on this because that multiple is silly for your category. And what you have going on, we're not going to do that. And I usually, I try to be really kind and open with founders. And I'm usually kind of like, hey, you know, I, I, if I like it, I'll, I like it. I'm going to hang around. If you can get that valuation, you take it. And if you go come back down to earth a little bit, give us a call. And that works, you know. Because people can have good, you know, if you're looking for numbers a year and a half ago, if you're doing $3 million in revenue, you can get like a $15 million valuation on average. There's still businesses that can absolutely do that because of metrics and founder and stuff. Now, I wouldn't say that's, it's more like 12. Is what I would say. You can even see nine. We looked at one just now that I like a lot that's at a revenue run rate of, of four and the post money's nine and it's a really exciting company. And those are the ones you wake up in the morning and get excited about. And I think that's the other thing founders forget. As a buyer, 
if you want to overvalue and get the best deal, that's great. But we see a lot of great deal flow. So we're probably going to skip that one and do the one that's a better deal. And then you're still going to get funded, but it may not be by the same level of money, uh, in my opinion. What product categories are really exciting to you at the moment? I know one of the things in D2C is it's always kind of like there's always something new and there's some level of innovation going on. There's new products and then you've got your uh, innovation on top of like old tired products. So what are some of the, you know, whether it's product categories, product types, different brands that are like emerging, what are some of the things that get you excited and that you think are going to be big in the the next couple of years? It's, I mean, you know, I love this question every time and I never give a great answer. Well, I'll make you guys roll your eyes. I still love supplements. I love supplements. They never seem, they only seem to go up. Like, <laughs> I don't understand how we don't have enough supplements, but apparently we don't. And uh, the margins are phenomenal. They never weigh a lot. Value per weight is incredible. The retention can be like really good. Um, that's a, that's a very crowded category that somehow just, oh, there always seems to be more room for more weird snake oily supplements. And I like to find ones that are real, you know, but uh, I love that one. That's a boring answer. We're in Wasan, which is like almost any article about non-alk, which is a huge category that is exploding. Uh, we'll mention Wasan. They're like the leader, I would argue, thought leader of that category. We love, because we're investing in them, we get to see their data. I consider that to be the best data set in non-alk period. Um, we're looking, hopefully, to invest in a non-alk company, but it's tough. And sometimes the categories you're most excited about, they're so wild west and new that it's really hard to pick a winner because the patterns aren't established. We love category traders. We love fast followers. So it's tough to say we like specific categories when we like people who are like really changing the game point of difference wise. But not is a good example of, I don't know what to say in terms of, we just haven't done a deal. we like several companies. Deswa is really cool. Pathfinder, which is back here is phenomenal. Like, Every bartender I've talked to is obsessed with these guys. Guy over there is a really cool dude. Um, I We looked at the deal, and one of my partners hated it. And he's like, I happen to know one of the best non-elk bartenders in Texas. And I didn't lead him at all. I go, what's your favorite non-elk spirit? And he's like a non-elk insulin geos, Pathfinder. Like immediately. And so these guys are on fire. My buddy Justin and Marshall and Shirley Wines, they're doing really well. There's a bunch of great brands in that category. It's just tough to pick. We just haven't fallen in love with anybody yet. Yet, but one of those three might be the next check. I don't know. That's a great category. Um, plant-based is down. Like everything was plant-based. And apparently we overdid that. And Lolly Kombucha. You'll, it, and before that, the first one I remember in my career was uh, Coconut Water where there was like two Coconut Waters at Expo West and then there was 56 Coconut Waters at Expo West. And then there was two again. And I was like, turns out we just needed two. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so uh, we're always wary of these like super buzzy categories. That's a terrible answer. But, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I never give a good one to that because we're always looking for something that's kind of a little bit special. Like, I don't know what you would call day the caffeine spray. Um, I'm not sure how you'd categorize that. And that's, we like that. A little bit energy, a little bit supplements. Yeah, there you go. And you made it seem easy. <laughs> but I I'll I'll give you I'll give you one I love. Uh Mastige. Uh 
prestige, but mass price. So like method is a perfect example. Uh, California naturals is, we hope to be the method of hair care, body care. It's a couple dollars more than Tresemme and some of those other but not much like, you know, two. And, uh, Jake's dog food is a perfect mastige brand. Blue Buffalo and whatever else is at Walmart. Those are the, the existing brands. Jinx is an upgrade quality wise at a very small upgrade financially. So suddenly you have this giant middle America group that can access clean ingredient things for their dog. You have this giant middle America group that can access clean ingredients for hair and body care without breaking the bank, without feeling like they got to spend 30 bucks. So we love those mastige products. The negative part of our mastige is you typically got to go big stack in terms of the big retailers. You got to go where those people shop and it ain't a whole food. Yeah, I mean, that I think the mastige part, it, it always gets me, right? Because like when you're in the D2C world and you're doing all these niche brands and you're talking to like all these brands that are popping up in Air One, you're, you're thinking this is like all that exists. And then you go into Costco and you start like walking around on a Sunday and it's like there's more people than you've ever seen in your life and everyone's just like ripping every single product <laughs> off the shelf. And you're looking at the price points and the volume and you're like, oh, this is a totally different beast. And like, this is what America loves. So um, it, I, I love that terminology in terms of like mastige and just understanding that there, there are, there's so many different markets and there, there are different games to be played. 100%. You know, mastige is fun from a venture perspective. And I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this, but I love brands that within two years, I know whether or not I hit a home run. You know, one of our partners is this like Southern date lust to just heat up his colloquialisms that are unbelievable. He's always like, you want your lemons to ripen fast in venture. I want to know if it's not going to win and I want to put my money and resources somewhere else. And so Mastige plays are kind of like, he's like king of the hill. If, you know, Jinx is doing really well at Walmart and I don't, I don't know what I'm allowed to say about their cap table, but they have some incredible strategics aka Walmart on there. And so they're moving, you know, they're doing really cool stuff there. And if they continue to do that, then that real estate is so valuable that they'd want D to C. Somebody can come along. They don't have to sell a single product. They just need to push up your CAC and spend a bunch of money in your category and they can mess up your business. Somebody's got to get into Walmart to to mess up Jinx's business. You know what I mean? There's real land there. Uh, and that's why I think a lot of brands are doing both. D to C is so valuable. But omni-channel is definitely where it's at for the current time and brands and most brands out of time. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because it's always this debate, but it's like you said, it it doesn't have to be a, a one or the other. Um, it's just an omni-channel strategy. And it reminds me of, you know, the passenger seat I've had and seeing Nick, our mutual friend, grow kettle and fire. I mean, they've they've done every channel from from the very early days. It's not one or the other and i'm sure they have their they've had their bumpy you know roads on amazon on retail on ddc and it's funny because i always hear people like don't do amazon do amazon um don't do retail do ddc but while <laughs> we do all of them um if it works for you it, it's just really hard to attack all of these avenues at the same time um, you know, it's not the same to figure out DTC, then go retail. It's a different beast to go after both and try to nail both at the same time. So whatever best works for your dynamic and team strategy, um, but you should probably just be omni-channel. Ramon, I can't tell you how many times in the last year I've heard people go, 
you got to do TikTok. Never do TikTok. TikTok's awful. TikTok is the best. Right. And you're like, holy shit. Like, is it good? I don't know. Or it, you know? Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. First of all, content creation is amazing if you're good at it. If you're good at it, it's the single best tool I think you can use. And if you're not good at it, figure out someone who is or just don't do it. You know, it's, it takes a lot of time and effort and resources. Everyone thinks like, oh, it doesn't cost anything. Maybe. Yeah, it's super expensive if you're going to do it well, unless you're just one of those phenomenal people who can do it with their phone and you understand how to make things viral. There's not that many of those people. But yeah, it's, it's, it is fun to hop on things and just have people prognosticate. I'm one of them. I'm always, do this, don't do that. And, you know, shit changes quick in CCG. So relating, you know, uh, bringing this conversation back to like this, this ties to the burn that you were talking about. Say first time founder. Um, and I also want to tie this to your background in agency. What are some of the, what is some of the advice you would give to early stage founders who hear this, they hear do Amazon, do TikTok, do retail. Um, if you want to keep your burn low, how do you sort of assess all of these opportunities and know what is the right channel for me and what should be my approach before I try to start tapping into new channels? This depends on category. So my first advice always for a founder, if you don't have one, you must get an advisor network does not have to be official. In fact, official is probably a gigantic waste of time and gonna freak people out. Get some people in your network. I'm sure you know some people. That, oh, you know some people who know some people who are willing to go get a coffee on you and tell you about retail. They're a broker that specializes in Publix. Who cares? Whatever they are, they can add an enormous amount of knowledge to you and they can help you understand where your channel is for your category. If you're a refrigerated beverage, D to C is not where you should start. Right. If you're a $90 nootropic brain health supplement, DC is exactly where you should start. Um, and so understanding what you couldn't have said it better, Ramon. And I guess I'm, I'm kind of punting, but what you asked is one of the most important questions any founder will ever ask themselves. Where do I launch and why? And am I right? And uh, never go off gut. If you're a first time founder at Austin CPG, you have no idea what you're doing. You don't, you don't understand it. <laughs> you get, you can get there a little bit by going as a customer, where would I expect to see this? I'm an expensive supplement. How does athletic greens do it? How does audit do it? That is primarily direct consumer. Okay. That's probably where I should be. If you can get there a little bit, still go ask experts. Um, and so, so to me, you got to factor in where your margins are at, fulfillment, that shipping thing we talked about. That's why refrigerated beverage can't do D to C. It's a, it's gotta be a complete nightmare. Um, and so you kind of find like path of least resistance financially, unit economics wise. Um, where is my, where, you know, fish where the fish are, who shops for, is anybody going online trying to look for refrigerated beverages? No. Uh, so I would fish where the fish are for sure, uh, uh, on that end. And, uh, but man, Ramon, that is like a phenomenal question that founders, a third of founders don't seem to have asked themselves that. They just heard D to C is where you're supposed to be or wherever. <laughs> and they never corrected whether or not their product is supposed to be there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they listen to Blaine or Ramon and they're like, yeah. I know what I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah. I'm, go I'm going online. 
No, well, Ryan, we just wanted to thank you for coming on the pod and and helping out, um, you know, helping us out, helping out some of those founders that might be getting crazy ideas about launching their own CPG or or other sort of company. So for everyone who's following along, where can we find out about you? Where can founders connect with you guys as well as learn more about, um, you know, would love to, I know we didn't really go too far into the weeds in terms of like high desert, but also a little bit more about your, uh, your, your cactus vodka brand. So, uh, midnightvp.com is our website. I've got a LinkedIn reach out to me on there. If you're a founder, um, the best way to reach out to any funder is on LinkedIn, go to my thing and see who you have mutual and see if any of those warm connections will make the intro. I always think that's better. Info at midnightvp.com. We do look at that. I'm not sure we've ever done an investment show. We might have. I mean, we really do look at people who are coming in uh, through that. Uh, so I, I would do LinkedIn or that if you're a brand trying to get in touch with us. Um, uh, in terms of uh, what you can see, it'd be, it'd be, it would be LinkedIn. High Desert, it's Cactus Vodka. Uh, that's called HighDesertVodka.com. We're distilled, uh, pureed, fermented, all from the fruit of the prickly pear cactus. We hand harvested in San Luis Potosí, Mexico, pureed this beautiful purple puree down there. Then we ferment in San Antonio, distilled in San Antonio. It's a very high-end vodka. Uh, we launched 60, 90 days ago. We went all in on point of difference. It's the most different vodka I've ever seen. We'll see if that works. It's going well so far. It's a lot of fun. Um, uh, and if you're ever in the Austin area, we're in a, we're, we're becoming kind of in most of the high-end restaurants of Mark. You can find us, you can find us there and we'll be in twin liquors, uh, starting next month as, as well. If you happen to be in the Austin, but to anyone else, primarily way to games would be midnight and midnightvb.com. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Guys, I really appreciate it. This was a blast. Good to see you again, Ramon. Take easy, Mike. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.